Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Cricket with an Accent. This is Saqib Ali and uh, last we were speaking about films and now we'll be back speaking about cricket. And joining me today is uh, Twitter's uh, Cricket Twitter's own historian Abhishek Chopra taking time out on a very busy work week uh, on a weeknight that too. And uh, we have good reason Abhi to be you know making these hard commitments as we'll be talking about the history of Pakistan versus Australia as there is a cricket series coming up Australia is visiting Pakistan after a hiatus of 24 years everyone is excited about this matchup so abhi here is going to help me and you the listeners to provide some historical context how this rivalry got underway you know in the 50s and you know how it shaped all the way to the 70s and we'll uh, talk about some of the father figures involved here some of the pivotal matches how the matches were played and i won't be doing justice to to this introduction so let me bring my guest in abhi thanks for doing this how are you buddy all good sakib thank you so much how are you i'm i'm okay i could be better i mean you know but that's life you know we've all seen these kind of days when you're trying to multitask through different things but here we are we should be talking uh, we should be talking abhishek chopra and then we should be talking australia versus pakistan So I kind of know you on Twitter you know like we are mutuals we've you know exchanged some messages you've uh, promoted my podcast with some very uh, genuinely supportive tweets so it was only fitting to you know bring your knowledge here because you do pack a punch you read a lot so and I'm sure a lot of people know you I mean I'm like the guy who people don't know but since you are the guest here what is your relation with cricket and books how far does it go back what came first is it the books or is it bat and ball or uh, just share share your journey so far uh, so um sakib i mean um, perhaps every kid um, my age grew up in an era where uh, you know cricket was like a lot of our lives growing up uh, and uh, the i was born in 88 and the first cricket match i somehow remember watching live was uh, some bit in the 1992 world cup the uh the world cup that happened in australia uh, colored uh, colored clothing uh, floodlights etc etc so very vague memory of watching that and uh, even more vague memory of uh, playing cricket at that age and you know as i grew up all i wanted to do was play cricket uh, got scolded uh, a great number of times because i was just out for far too long playing cricket um and Uh, just kept watching whatever came on tv it could be you know some very old recording of derbyshire versus northamptonshire for all all you know and if there was cricket on tv i was watching it uh, not a lot from you know a lot of countries was broadcast in india at least to my knowledge but uh, just the fascination just kept growing uh, and you know the commentary scene had also changed uh, by then so you learned a lot of those commentators also and you know grew up to idolize them particularly the ones in australia uh and then at some stage i did have like a serious ambition to go on and play cricket professionally however uh you know obviously life came in the way i was from a very small town where we didn't have access to a lot of resources there were many others who made it even from you know those those places but somehow i had to focus more on studies etc kept playing though uh, obviously as a hobby and i think the high point of my 
uh, amateur cricket career was uh, playing for my engineering college and representing my engineering university and all of that and um, kept wickets uh, opened the batting um, wrote a few stories about it much much later so yeah i think uh, playing the game at any sort of serious level with a season ball just changes your perspective on anything and everything related to cricket very easy to you know sit on this side of the screen and say that um, he should be leaving that or he should be in such and such position while hooking that etc but you know you just realize how tough it is when you have actually played and uh, i guess that's that just makes you more humble when you're you're watching uh, other people play so yeah i i i'm very very grateful for cricket in my life and uh, didn't have access to a lot of books growing up uh, uh, cricket books uh, the only thing that i had was the sports star magazine which is you know the case for so many people of my generation so that really uh, you know ignited an interest in cricket reading back in the day and then when i started earning i had some money to spare i started uh, you know buying cricket books and uh, i think Uh, that fascination with cricket writing has only grown further and further um i i buy lots of cricket books now uh, feel very sad when there are some old books that aren't available um, online or at least aren't avail- available at an affordable price uh so yeah whatever is available second hand bookstores in bombay here uh, or some other place like calcutta we have college street so just keep getting whatever i can uh, and i love completely love reading and there's so much about uh, you know cricket history that's there in those books that uh, the fascination does uh, does not wear off for me so yeah it's very very fulfilling and uh, it's just one of the greatest joys of my life i would say and then believe me it totally reflects because when i didn't know you as well you know you had like these uh... these witty tweets but they you know again you know twitter is not a complaint i mean we all come from different walks of life and more importantly with different perspectives you know how old we are you know if you are young uh, if you are a youthful person who's ready to take twitter in the world and you know like i was in my 20s and i can totally go back and see how some accounts are more in your face more direct and maybe that's the language the youth speaks and you know it is not a criticism but with your account there came an assured calmness and it was never uh, i never thought you know at least it, uh, the way you read certain tweets i never thought you were trying to put someone down or insult someone and for the listeners here when i approach abhi uh, you know so this topic came up because i wanted to have him on the podcast i listened to him speak on the bodyline episode for our friends of the last wicket where benny interviewed him and it was a great episode if you haven't listened to it go check it out so i asked him you know good topics where we can take this conversation to and abhi was you know very knowledgeable and he said look i have studied uh history of the game and i am consider myself a good student in pakistan australia was in my mind and he wanted to take it to a place which i didn't know was an option to really look at how the rivalry shaped in the 50s and that's a kind of Uh, the conversation we'll have in few minutes and some people might be saying why didn't i get a pakistani or an australian that's that's a valid question but then abhi did present that he had access to some of the great pakistani cricket books and he I let him speak about that and you know this is how this podcast idea was solidified that we'll be talking about the 
the history between these two countries when uh, Australia visited Pakistan uh, after Pakistan was still a new country. So Abhi, again, you've read many books. So and uh, just for the listeners here, uh, what books are we going to be talking about today? Because, you know, you probably uh, bring a lot of knowledge from various books and various reading points. But what are the inspiration today for sources that, you know, you'll share here with the listeners and myself? Uh, so, Sakib, I think uh, uh, one of the one of the most favorite cricket books that I have, uh, which have been written in the recent past, is uh, definitely Osman Samyuddin's uh, The Unquiet Ones. Uh, fabulous, fabulous book. Uh, he he writes it with a great deal of love, a great deal of passion, and uh, I think he he talked about the book in uh, the eighty one all out podcast as well and uh, the fact that he spent a lot of his time away from the actual real cricket uh, physically uh, happening in pakistan because he was somewhere in the gulf uh, i think that uh, you know pang of missing out on on all of that stuff actually comes out in his book uh, fabulous history of uh, of cricket in pakistan and everything to do with it uh, doesn't go into the details of every single match but he covers a lot of ground when you're talking about uh, you know stuff that was happening around cricket in pakistan be it commentary uh, be it uh, you know uh, the first class game or be it how history of pakistan or politics of pakistan or the economics and society of pakistan was impacting pakistan cricket so yeah very very in depth uh, in depth book in that sense the other one which is perhaps written with a little bit more of a scholarly mindset and also i would say but not in a bad way with a little bit of a colonial gaze is uh, uh, peter obon's wonderful book uh, uh, the wounded tiger uh, obon and heller uh, these two also run a very good podcast uh, by themselves uh, they have written another book called white and green which is not a history of pakistan cricket but more a set of stories uh, around pakistan cricket and many fascinating characters involved in pakistan cricket so these are you know the three sort of reference books i would say which i've read uh, then there are lots of biographies autobiographies newspaper articles etc uh, the two which are uh, you know the most recent ones i've read one is alan davidson's uh, 15 paces Uh, which is his autobiography uh, very very delightful book and uh, the other one is fazal's Mah- fazal mahmood's uh, from dusk to dawn um, which is i mean perhaps a book that could have been so much more uh, because fazal was just one of the most phenomenal cricketers pakistan produced back in the day uh, and I, i was kind of you know left a little heartbroken when the book ended because it didn't cover as much ground as i wanted it to but i mean even then it's it's one of my most prized possessions already i've read it recently and so that is another book that i'm going to refer to but you know i can't cover ground with respect to all the other stuff that is out there about pakistan cricket and australia cricket and um the test series that we are going to talk about but so many uh, so many good write ups about the shared history of these uh, of these two cricketing nations that's out there yeah, it's really a lot of food for thought and i'll hopefully touch upon 
uh, all the things you just said, which make a lot of sense. But I'll go back to the previous answer you gave me about your own cricket journey. And you said something very profound. And I think that, to me, it paints a larger picture how we see the game as fans. Like I've said in many podcasts, uh, you know, my relation to cricket was through my father, who never played the sport, who also represents a huge section of fans who actually have never, ever played the sport and uh, saw it through their own, you know, eyes of, you know, like either fandom or patriotism or India as my team. And, you know, that's where my dad, uh, uh, I would say, is categorized. But I played the game a lot, but never at a high organized level. So when I played my most consistent cricket in the US, we formed a team. I ran to a lot of players who have played at a very high level. And I was just the captain by design because I was more like the man manager of the team. I got the team together. Yeah. But skill-wise, I, was, I shouldn't be the captain if I look back now some of the horrendous decisions I used to take. I didn't read the game well. And then, no, seriously, because playing with people who could read the game well, who could do this field yeah. positions. Because I had a very Azaruddin type template, you know, I'll go with like this kind of field and bring this, you know, because I was more of a, uh, the reading knowledge kind of, a, you know, yes. uh, information of the game. I never played the game. I always played the game, but I never played at a high level. So I just wanted yeah. to ask you this, like when you said you played organized cricket and it teaches you a lot. So what does it teach you, Abhi? Because uh, some people, you know, and I'm not saying there are like people like Vijay, our common friend, who himself says he's never played the game, but he's an excellent, astute observer, not yeah. on the game, but off the field issues. So, but I still think Vijay is more an exception to the rule. I still yeah. think a huge population is like my dad and my uncle and my cousins in my ecosystem who didn't really know how to hold a bat, but they're so passionate about cricket. And then we move on to cricket Twitter where, you know, all are mutuals like uh, Karthik Jairaman or Sahil and Himanesh yeah. and all these guys are fairly yeah. knowledgeable. But yeah. uh, just use your anecdote that you just said, that it teaches you a lot. So what does it teach you when you've played the game? Do you understand the game's uh, shortcomings better? Are you less harsh on players or is it an evolutionary arc that a 38-year-old or whatever your age, a 36-year-old Abhi knows more now just because he played the game? compared to a 36-year-old Abhi who had never played the game at that level? So just a free-flow answer, because that's been my journey. I know the game a lot better now, but if I look yeah. at my playing journey, I was a novice. Yeah, so uh, I think, Sakib, the, the first thing that I would say is that, uh, you know, I was reading a, a pretty terrific article that uh, there's this guy called Hari Govind on, on cricket Twitter. He wrote about uh, bowling cues, for example. Uh, and, you know, what do you read from the bowler's hand, from his run-up and all of those kind of things and how as a batsman you're supposed to, you know, face up to it and only then can your reaction time be uh, suitable enough to be able to, uh, you know, do something about, about a really fast ball. And, uh, I remember that I played in my engineering college team and for my university for around two to three years. And only during the last one year did I actually figure out how to actually watch the ball and how to figure out or predict rather what it was going to do by watching how it was being released or where the fingers of the bowler were in, in relation to the seam. And if I was facing a particular bowler uh, multiple times, uh, some insight about, you know, what he was going to do given what had just happened or what was going to happen or what was the situation of the game. So 
I don't know if, you know, if you're coached properly in an organized manner, if these skills come in, uh, come into your game earlier, we didn't have any coach. We just, you know, were a bunch of uh, naive cricketers who were figuring out our own way against, uh, against a season ball. So I just realized that, you know, some of these skills and some of these things about, let's say, match temperament, etc., you only realize when you play at an organized level. The other thing is, is perhaps a funny thing. Uh, as a kid, when I was growing up, uh, and you know, even on a pitch like India, I, I had some understanding of how pitches are different in different countries as a kid. But even, in a, even on a flat pitch like India, at least on, let's say, the first couple of days, you would often see batsmen going down the pitch and you know, tapping their bats and they call it gardening. Uh, and you could never figure out why they did it. But as soon as I started playing cricket with a season ball, kitted up, pads, gloves, helmet, whatever, somehow I developed the same habit. And to this day, I don't know how it happened because it wasn't as if I wanted to ape or copy someone. But it just happened that wherever the previous ball had pitched, my reflex action was to go there and you know tap it before coming back to the crease as the bowler was going back to his run-up, fast bowler. So it's just perhaps, you know, one of those things that happens when when you play the game at at a decent level. Uh, The last bit I would say is perhaps what you touched upon in the question too about being less harsh on players. I think you, you develop a more serious appreciation of how difficult it is to be able to do any of those skills that are involved in the game. If you've been, uh, you know, a wicketkeeper, for example, uh, it's very easy to say that, you know, Rishabh Pant is not shaping up well as a keeper or Ben Fox is so good or, you know, uh, I do it all the time. I have a particular fascination for wicketkeeping because I was a keeper myself and I would... Even if nothing's happening with respect to the keeper, I would keep watching him and then keep forming an opinion about him. Uh, So you just realize how tough that job is. And if you're not training for it physically, mentally, day in and day out, it is very, very difficult to be able to keep wickets well, pace, spin bowling, medium pace, whatever kind of bowling you want to talk about. it's, It's one of those super tough things that we do not realize uh, you know the extent of the of the difficulty while watching on TV, uh, and the last thing that I would say is again one of those things that came up on cricket Twitter, and and you know it it was a realization for me too about my own cricket, is that you figure out how to watch a game from the bowling captain's eyes. To my mind, that is the best way to watch any cricket match uh, at any level, and you really understand that that guy who's the bowling captain at any particular time is really the one who's driving the game. Uh, he's the one deciding who's going to bowl. He's the one who's deciding whether you want a new ball or not. Uh, field placings. Yeah, of course, there are other guys who have you know uh, an opinion and sometimes he listens to them, doesn't listen to them. But he's the one who's like, you know, calling the shots. And the batsman is in some sense reacting to what he is orchestrating through the bowler. So... Figuring out what he's trying to do, even when you're watching a match on TV and what his game plan is, is he being defensive? Is he attacking? Is he going uh, 
for Brooke? Is he holding things back? Is he playing for a draw? Every single ball that you watch can be interpreted as the state of mind of the bowling captain. And that is what I learned while playing the game myself. Especially if I was not keeping, I was fielding somewhere. I was always trying to think what my captain is doing. And when you're a junior in an engineering college, you don't always get to ask that question. But as I became one of the seniors, I was able to ask the captain about those things and probably offer a you know word of advice, which was often ignored, uh, so to speak. But it's just fascinating how that one guy is running so much of the show. And of course, he's reacting to the batsman too, as in what the batsman is trying to do and changing the field according to that. But he's really calling the shots. And that's why even when I'm watching the game now on TV, I'm always trying to figure out what he's trying to do and how the game is shaping up because of that. Okay, so you made me a better watcher going forward whenever I'm going to be watching the next test match. Okay, you just simplified uh, the bowling captain's perspective. That's that's brilliant. And uh, believe me, if you had ever watched me marshal the troops, you would have said, what the hell is this guy doing? Because I was a bowler who was a captain. But my, my biggest thing was I couldn't, tell, you know, what kind of feels for each batsman. But over yeah. playing in US, the same opponents, I I did develop a thing. I knew what some batsmen would like to do. So I had my own uh I had my own, you know, device how to how to get these people out. But yeah, I, I definitely uh if I think back, you know, look back now and say, why was I even captain? You know, like I, I'm my own harshest yeah. critic. But let me ask you one more thing along those lines. So you made some very interesting observations about the temperament and watching the bowlers. And that's all good. That's the technique part of the game. Uh, Want to share more uh, on a larger s- spectrum where people say sports teaches you about life. So going yeah. to that coaching or going to that, uh, you know, practice, giving up yeah. other things like watching a movie or, you know, going after yeah. girls or, you know, hanging out with friends. You, there's a discipline, right? So yeah. talk about being dropped. Talk about the moment when you realize you're not good enough, as good as you thought. Because what does that tell a young listener about the game? Because, you know, you're learning through a few things. You know, yeah. like, very quickly that, okay, I won't be able to play for the college team or the state team or vice versa. You know, yeah. so what does that tell you in a team environment when you kind of give, you accept that someone else is better and, you know, in a team, it's okay for you to carry drinks that day or just come support the troops. Because when I met some advanced cricketers in the US from India and Pakistan, the language yeah. they spoke, I realized was very different. Those guys would tell me on the side, sorry, it's a well-rounded question, but I'm giving you my background. So yeah. they would tell me, drop me because, you know, this guy was a doctor. He said, I don't really care. I come here to have fun for four hours. If you have more guys, drop me, even though he's a decent player. So I had yeah. never dropped anyone when I was playing my gully cricket or school cricket in India because we barely had 11. And if you drop someone, we didn't think twice. Here, I had to drop someone and 17 people said yes for a Sunday game and I have to announce a team and I had to drop six people. Believe me, it wasn't the best decision I've ever took. So I was looking for faces who would not feel bad. You know, that's not a cricket decision. But I, I factored that in because I was more like a man manager. And, you know, and then skill-wise, I was thinking, you know, I was very harsh on myself. Was, Look, if I was not captain, I would probably be the 12th man today. You know, I'm better than those five guys, but these 11 are better. So talk about that level. When do you develop that? And how do you take that forward in life? Not even cricket, just to workplace when you're part of a sporting, uh, you know, sporting function and you know you're not the best on a given day and you will be sitting out. And what, what, what values are those? Sorry, it's such a long question, but you get the drift. 
Yeah, for sure, uh, Sakib. So I, I'll talk about two, three incidents and, uh, you know, in, in those two, three years that I spoke about and what they taught me. Uh, in the second year, I was, uh, you know, seriously considered as part of, let's say, the final playing 11 for a tournament that we were going to play for the first time. Uh, and suddenly I had this uh, very bad attack of migraine and uh, it happened for the first time when I was returning from practice one day early in the morning and then it kept recurring over a period of time and uh, I had to miss a few practice sessions and uh, one of the stupidest thing I was telling myself is even with this headache I can go out there and you know perhaps play so that I can I can still take a chance to play in the final 11 but uh, it just wasn't possible I mean it wasn't physically possible and the disappointment that it brings you, uh, you know, any such uh, injury or medical uh, problem, the the sheer sadness that you feel when you're taken away from an opportunity that you could have had because of reasons out of your control, it, it absolutely breaks your heart. And I mean, I, I remember very, very clearly down being down in the dumps because I just wasn't able to do anything about it. And uh, I think it made me want this whole thing more and it made me more determined. Uh, it wasn't as if I'm, I was, you know, suddenly going to play for India. I had that much determination. There's also skill and a lot of other factors, but at whatever level you're playing, uh, missing out on cricket because of reasons out of your control, I now understand how it can take you either way. It can either, you know, make you lose focus passion for the game completely and you think to yourself i'm better off just as a watcher and um, you know nobody's going to uh, care whether i played or not etc or it can make you uh, you know much more passionate and much more uh, of someone who really wants it and realizes that he has to make up for the lost time and Sometimes I think Pat Cummins is a great example of that. He had problems with his bowling action that resulted in problems with his back and out he went and how he has come back now. So I think dealing with any form of injury teaches you a lot. Uh, the other thing is how do you encounter very primal fear? So the first time I actually represented uh, my engineering college in a match against another engineering college with season ball in a proper organized tournament. Uh, I remember that someone who was an under-19 cricketer for uh, the MP team uh, was in the other team and he was bowling really, really, really quick, at least, you know, for, for my level at that time. And one of his uh, first few balls in, the, in his over hit me on the shoulder. And thankfully, it didn't hit me on one of the weaker parts of the shoulder. It just hit the, uh, you know, part where, uh, you know, it's it's much stronger in that sense. And so, it didn't result in a very long-term injury, but it just resulted in me being completely frozen for those two minutes. And obviously, I mean, that team was more experienced than us, played better than us, and so they slashed the shit out of me. Uh, when when that happened. But in those two moments uh, that I took before facing up the next ball, I realized that it is possible that the next ball that comes 
could be at my head and it could be seriously threatening and of course i had a helmet on and everything but when you have dealt with that fear and when you have you know gone past it and faced the next ball and the ball after that and the ball after that it changes something in you forever and i'm never going to forget it i've written about it uh it was just one of those moments where you know that there could be bigger challenges in life and maybe not all of them are going to be about the physical aspect of fear only but i mean if you could face that ball and still you know take strike for the next one maybe the other things in life are also sort of going to be okay and i also realize even as i'm saying this that some of it could be categorized as psychobabble because you know ultimately it was just a normal ball probably the speed was 130 120 something and i was absolutely fine it wasn't as if i even had to you know get retired hurt but you know it's just one of those things that has been a great lesson for me and i think for anyone playing at that level you develop a different kind of temperament once you go through that sort of experience uh and the third thing was uh you know as you mentioned getting dropped uh it wasn't as if i got uh you know dropped uh multiple times but this one time when uh i had an injury uh, a yorker had essentially hit me on the foot and it had rendered me completely useless to the uh you know cause that we were fighting for uh and then when i came back uh after that layoff i was still batting okay but someone else had taken up my position in the team which was opener and he did fairly well in the chance that he got uh and then i got a look in but then i didn't do well because i had lost a bit of match practice and then i got dropped again and that entire experience one was again you know feeling that things are out of your control but then getting that chance and wanting it so bad wanting to do so well so bad to regain your position permanently that you end up failing uh i think that is again something that probably taught me the importance of you know especially in something like cricket where you are at the mercy of so many things um, if you're an amateur it taught me the value of you know not being attached too much to how things pan out ultimately we are all here at any level of cricket and obviously different factors come in at different levels but there has to be some sort of childlike innocence about the game for you whether it is reading whether it is podcasting as you're doing whether it is playing uh, it could be anything related to the game but as long as that childlike innocence is there which fuels so many other facets of your own game and your personality uh, i think you will be married to the process but not the result and again this is something that cricketers say all the time and you don't realize the value of it until you you know go through the journey uh, yourself but it, it just taught me a lot and i was terribly unsuccessful in that particular year but i think i i i ended up being a better person for that experience i'm sure you are and thanks for sharing that with us here or with me and the listeners so again if you're thinking you know why sakib going deep into abhi's cricketing days and his lessons i just want to in my own view paint a picture of how comprehensive a reader he is and how not only he's read books he's read cricket he's read his journey in cricket so that's why you know to me he's a good fit uh 
to talk about Australia and Pakistan, even though he comes from India, you know, so a little bit of audience we have does come from different parts of the world. So I think that does set the stage in my mind. Hopefully the listeners will enjoy what Abhi has to say going forward as well. So Abhi, again, these two nations, you know, uh, couldn't be more different how they have played the cricket in my view. They have, you know, both very charismatic and, you know, very in your face oppositions in their own right. If you look at at least the recent times, the teams led by Imran and then the Vaseem Akram team and the talent Pakistan had. And of course, Australia is legendary since uh, Alan Border and his men won uh, the Reliance Cup. You know, their legacy only got better in the last 40 years. They have the most dominant teams through Ricky Ponting and Steve Waugh and Mark Taylor before him. So, how do you set the stage for this conversation? You know, we'll be talking a lot of historical context, but in your view, how is Australia and Pakistan more similar than they appear to be? Or do you even agree with the premise of the question? No, I think I think that's a very interesting point that you make at the end, Sakib. Uh, and, and growing up, I always thought of these two uh, countries in cricket as the classic, you know, East versus West sort of conundrum. Uh, but... You know, over a period of time, I've realized that there are a few aspects, whether, uh, you know, you talk about uh, match fixing or ball tampering in the recent past or, you know, so many other things where, uh, or even the fact that, you know, they, they both get their cricket from uh, the same, same route, so to speak, which is England. Uh, so a lot of things that uh, perhaps are, are, are applicable to both of these countries, but in very, very different ways. Uh, and it's amazing how you know these two countries haven't played in Pakistan for the last 28 years because of so many other issues that were outside the control of the cricketers of course but even now I think the the matches that they play have a bit of needle about it and perhaps you know it's also a, a sign of the changing times that the needle is that much less now but uh, at least in the earlier days uh, when when I grew up watching, and I'm sure when you grew up watching the game, it was a very, very particular kind of, uh, you know, needle. It wasn't the same as Pakistan, England, where you were, you know, the colonizer and the colonized. It wasn't India, Pakistan, where there were so many aspects to the, you know, huge rivalry. This was perhaps a cricketing rivalry in that sense, because none of the other extraneous, uh, extraneous factors were applicable, so to speak. And that brought about a lot of, you know, great cricket, I would say, when whenever these two teams have faced up. And uh, in, in that sense, I think the rivalry is really fascinating. Uh, I think the best way to describe is, uh, describe that rivalry or that contrast is perhaps what, what Russell Jackson wrote. He's, he's one of those uh, guys who dives deep into history and one of, you know, my favorite people to read. He he mentions how the Pakistan versus Australia cricket contrast is captured by the Australian fascination um, and, you know, almost hero worship for their baggy green. Uh, so much so that they want to go to Wimbledon while wearing it. And on the other hand, you have Javed Miyadad who scored his uh, famous double hundred against Australia in Pakistan while wearing uh, a sun hat which said, I love New York. Um, and it was one of those innings where, you know, the Pakistani umpires were at their best. I think there were some uh, eight, nine, ten decisions which went in his favor, which could have gone in, in, in uh, Australia's favor. But the difference of headgear for me, uh, 
and you know perhaps also the difference in the kind of cricketers that they produce australia has you know they have their sense of individuality but it's often you know the textbook approach or the coaching book book approach with very few modifications while pakistan uh, perhaps lesser so in the very recent years but earlier it was all about maverick cricketers and maverick personalities etc so i guess that perhaps captures the contrast but as you mentioned at the end of your question there is a lot more common uh, than we perhaps realize and it it keeps you know going up uh, with each passing year or each passing decade uh, and and it's just fascinating how these two countries have uh, you know unfortunately not played for the last 28 years in pakistan but i think this is going to be an absolute blockbuster of a tour yeah looking forward to it and hopefully i can uh you know there's there's a lot of questions that come to mind when you give your responses i'll stick to the script and i try to be little organic with some uh some diversions later on because i already have a question planted uh when we talk, when we try to wrap this up so let's start this conversation then october 1956 is the one off test in pakistan is coming back on the heels of an ashes uh, uh you know tour and uh, originally it was supposed to be a two test tour that pakistan wanted but australia only agreed for one so walk us through that series you know how the series came into existence and uh, was australia just fulfilling a calendar i'm sure from pakistan side they were raring to go it was the first time the aussies were coming so what have we learned what the context was because to me context is huge when you unpack this historical moments uh, studying the scorebook and uh, who won the match and all that is good but context prevails because you know context sometimes doesn't get captured so yeah, yeah. walk us through this so yeah as you mentioned october 1956 was when uh, you know australia took pakistan for a first time uh, the test match was in uh, was in karachi and the aussies were obviously coming from uh, a sorry defeat at the hands of england and particularly so jim laker uh, so when they came to pakistan the other thing that they were perhaps surprised by was matting wickets and matting wickets is is like a phenomenon itself uh, there have been may, many countries in in uh, cricket which have had you know matting wickets but i guess pakistan would be right at the top in terms of you know how their history early history is uh, you know entwined with the phenomenon of matting wickets so from whatever i've read and i've played a fair bit on matting wickets myself obviously at a much uh, lower level but from whatever i've read i think it's one of those things where if you have uh, you know a little bit of skill with your wrist and if you are a little faster than absolute military medium pace like you know uh, the the guys from new zealand dibli dobli dibli wobli if you are a little faster than that and if you are you know one of those guys that pakistan produced in abundance and continues to do so who can play around with uh, you know with his wrist then you're going to extract a lot of life from those wickets uh, and obviously pakistan at that time had fazal mahmood in their ranks who was an absolute master of matting wickets uh, so so that is perhaps you know one of the one of the main things about uh, this first test uh, between australia and pakistan the other thing to note is that in pakistan you had jute matting uh, which is different from coir matting uh, or sorry the other way around pakistan had coir matting and and 
the other uh, option was jute matting jute matting was famously there in lucknow which we'll uh, you know uh, come to later uh, but they had coir matting and uh, fazal mahmood was the absolute expert of it and obviously we'll come to more of the matting wicket piece later uh, the captain for pakistan was obviously abdul hafiz kardar who is like an icon of pakistan cricket and his shadow looms large over such a large part of pakistan cricket history uh these guys had already beaten you know the mcc team on their home soil um and they had also won uh, at the oval in 1954 which was petted as such a great win uh they had won at lucknow uh, on their first ever tour to india uh, and this is essentially a team that was no pushover even though it was such a young team coming into international cricket they had beaten pakistan at uh, sorry new zealand at home so australia by no means you know was going to have it easy but then you know while i don't come across any such uh, stuff being mentioned i'm also wary of the fact that was it such an important test for australia after all you know against this new country anyway we we go into the test and uh, obviously we also understand that uh, how fazal was you know such an absolute master of the matting wicket uh so he essentially blew australia away uh, fazal mahmood uh, was also part of the indian team that had toured australia earlier or could have been a part of that team but you know obviously didn't go uh, and they say that uh, if he would have been there uh, in australia as part of the touring party then we could have had at least one win on india's first tour of australia in 1947 48 but then i mean he made up for it or more than made up for it uh you know in in this test the first test uh between pakistan and australia so the the biggest shock that came was pakistan bowled out australia for just 80 runs and fazal mahmood ended up picking up six wickets and there was another pacer called khan mohammed who took four wickets and then when it was pakistan's turn to bat uh, again they had a little bit of struggle uh but they still ended up with 199 runs which was a very very handy lead from the australian score of 80 uh and again it was fazal all over pakistan seven wickets for him three for khan mohammed as australia just scored 87 and now since it was a test in pakistan it cannot without its you know fair share of twists so pakistan just had to get 69 runs and you won't believe the number of overs they took to get to that win they took 48.4 overs and it became so bad at one point in time that the home crowd which was hoping badly for a pakistan win ended up booing the batsmen because they just wouldn't score so i mean this test for me sets up the context so nicely because it's a bowling dominated test uh, on a matting wicket and fazal just shines through and even within such a simple script so to speak there is that whole aspect of the you know crowd booing uh, the batsmen because they just wouldn't score the winning runs mm. so i think this test in some sense uh, you know sets the context for whatever we are going to talk about later because it was on the face of it on the surface of it very very plain and simple just bowlers doing well but then there are so many other elements to it about the fact that the captain of pakistan kardar had 
you know, played Australia earlier, obviously not for Pakistan, but when Bradman's 1948 Invincibles had gone to uh, England, they played one of their tour matches against Oxford University and Abdul Hafiz Kardar, who was studying at uh, Oxford at that time and became a completely changed man after Oxford, he was in that team and Jack Fingleton, uh, you know, writes very highly about his bowling in that match. So for that guy to be in this team, to be the leader of this team who wins the match, uh, you know, for Pakistan uh, and Fuzzle, who didn't get a chance to go to Australia uh, with the Indian team before partition or just after partition, uh, but still, you know, ends up doing such a great job against the same team, but for another country now, I think it's, it's just the perfect start for the, the Australia-Pakistan Test cricket relationship. Well, it's definitely quite the unpacking there and uh, I already have a couple of ideas where I should take this. But let's stay a bit on the matting uh, differences, right? Uh, what they had in Lucknow and the jute wickets, you said, right? In Pakistan, if I'm not mistaken. So how are the yeah. two different? And uh, were these the only two nations that had matting wickets then? Uh, because in England, Australia probably had turf wickets, right? And uh, New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so turf wicket had already become, uh, you know, the common thing around the world by then. And uh, I've also read about how South Africa had, uh, had a few matting wickets uh, way back in the day. But Lucknow in India with the jute matting and a lot of wickets in Pakistan, particularly Karachi with their choir matting were perhaps the only two countries which, you know, uh, continued with these wickets for a long period of time. And uh, it was such an object of fascination for me when I came across this for the first time, because growing up, I had thought that, okay, matting wickets are only for, you know, the the low level players like me, but then cricket history... uh, for Pakistan and India, the early part of it is riddled with how matting wickets were like a, an added element of the game in itself, um, you know, more than the pitch is generally in, in a test match. And to be very honest, I don't really know the intricate differences between how a jute matting wicket behaves versus uh, how, a, how a choir matting wicket behaves. The only thing that that we know is that Fazal Mahmood, uh, you know, and I keep going back to him as soon as it's matting wickets. He liked bowling so much on these wickets and so little on turf wickets. That very uncharitable uh, thing to say, but many Pakistan players of that time believed that if there was a particularly difficult opponent and the match was on a turf wicket, maybe Fazal even feigned an injury or two. And uh, in his own book, he just says I had a strained thigh or I had a hamstring problem or something. But I think there are at least a couple of instances where uh, Fuzzle skipped tests and the others didn't really believe that it was because of injury. So uh, I'm sure it, it was one of those things which perhaps we would have to do it all our all over uh, again to figure out you know how, how different skills would come in handy. Uh, but then Fuzzle also did so well you know, in other conditions that you can't uh, really treat him as as a one-trick bowler. So, I think the more we have moved away from matting wickets and onto turf wickets, the less we realize that, you know, they had such a crucial role to play in the history of cricket in Pakistan. Okay, so that kind of uh, paves for the next tour, but... Uh... 
you said something that was, I think, uh, that puts a lot of things in context. It happens in today's sport too. Like, you know, if India is having a one-off test with a Bangladesh and uh, there's no knock on Bangladesh, but uh, sometimes, uh, of course, you don't want to say anyone's taking anyone lightly, but uh, even from a fan's point of view, a three-test affair, say, against uh, England would draw a lot more attention for fans, media, maybe players too. But yeah. uh, similarly, Australia was coming back on the heels of that one uh, drubbing and, and the ashes through Jim Laker and the England team. And uh, Pakistan was ready to go. So, you know, multiple uh, narratives can exist about the same match. So do you yeah. think this one-off matting drubbing, even though Pakistan was slower than Pujara in chasing that 63 and 46 overs, do you think that kind of set the tone for the next time Australia toured for three tests? That was a more pivotal tour. It was a full tour. And yeah. um, and I think they had some matting preparation. So you think that kind of set the stage for this rivalry, at least from Australia's point of view? Yeah, yeah, for sure it did. I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, even, even for example, the fact that uh, Pakistan really wanted to do so well against Australia, maybe told them that they want to take it a little more seriously. And this is just my own interpretation of how, you know, I've come across things. Uh, you know, Fazil, for example, writes in his book that, after doing what he did against India and against England, he knew that, you know, this was in some sense, in a very small sense, perhaps back in the day, but some sort of a final frontier. And he really, you know, gave it all in, in preparation, uh, in terms of physical training. And he was, you know, uh, preparing himself for this, for this one-off test by staying in a hotel in somewhere in the mountains of Pakistan. And, uh, you know, the hotel owner, obviously didn't believe so much in his abilities as he did. So he essentially placed a bet with this hotel guy that if he bowls Australia for under 100, then the bill would be, you know, uh, no longer applicable. And the hotel owner would uh, essentially get double the bill if, you know, Fuzzle was not able to do that. Now, of course, I mean, it's Fuzzle's own book, so we don't know how much of this was true. We don't have the... uh, you know, the hotel guy's testimony to prove it either way. But uh, obviously, Fuzzle, you know, won that bet and uh, the hotel owner didn't end up honoring his his side of the bet. But essentially, it tells you that for this small country finding its way in the you know pantheon of test cricket, this was a big, big moment. And Australia must have been taken, uh, you know, by surprise a little bit by the fact that it was a matting wicket, as well as by the fact that, you know, Pakistan was really a force to be reckoned with. And uh, that not only reflected in the preparation that Australia did before the next tour, but also, you know, in in the fact that, as you mentioned, it was a proper tour comprising three tests. Uh, And, and, you know, of course, this was, uh, for me, it's one of my favorite Australia-Pakistan test series ever. And they also had toured India, right? Prior to the series or after the series? The full-fledged subcontinent tour, right? Yeah, yeah. So again, it was one of those things where, you know, after the Ashes, they, they came to the subcontinent. And and this time, it was, uh, uh, they toured India after Australia, uh, after Pakistan. So again, you know, England being the colonial masters, right? You know, uh, I talked with Kamran Abbasi, his book, English Sun, and of course, same relation with India. You know, beating England in England was always, you know, like some sort of a, uh, confirmation 
you know, because the two countries were now, you know, independent and India and Pakistan used to be one. So did you sense reading these books that uh, there was a special fixation with Australia developing or it was still England and then everyone else as far as Pakistan went uh, for their cricketing matters? I think it was still uh, England and everyone else uh, because perhaps of the uh, perhaps because of the fact that you know England was obviously the colonizer for these two countries uh, and player development was thought to happen in England so you had something called the Pakistani eaglets which is you know a fascinating name for me a group of young players being sent to Alf Gower school or Andy Sandham school in in the UK to learn their cricket uh, and cricketers wanting to play county cricket uh, and you know it was almost uh, Usman devotes an entire chapter in his book uh, called Parkshire uh, to uh, Pakistani cricketers who played county cricket over the years. So I think it was definitely England first and perhaps the Oval 1954 victory only strengthened that feeling. Uh, but even by then, uh, the realization that Australia was also a force to be reckoned with and Australia was also a team to be beaten and if you were measuring up yourself against Australia, you were measuring up yourself against the best. I think just from a pure cricketing skill point of view, that realization was already there. And uh, even though you obviously didn't have live cricket at that time, but you obviously knew what was happening in the ashes. And so the fact that Australia was also coming into its own uh, in terms of competing uh, against England, and of course, they had a very rich history of uh, you know, dominating ashes for periods of time. I think that meant that Pakistan really, really took uh, cricket against Australia seriously. And even more so when it was at home where uh, you know, it was almost a chance to prove to their fans also that uh, you know, they, were a, they were a great team uh, or at least a good team which was on to its way to greatness. All right. So then, you know... Fill the listeners in. Who are the pivotal players? I know a certain Richie Benno was leading Australia. Uh, just talk about you know the key players on both sides who were going to shape the series, and you know what was the narrative coming into yeah. it, this three-tour test series. Yeah, yeah. So uh, before this, uh, before this series in 1959, Pakistan had uh, had played against the West Indies away, um, and while this series was uh, won by uh, West Indies, three-one uh, to them. Uh, this was, of course, that series in which Hanif Mohammed, uh, you know, did that brilliant job of uh, defiance with his 337 run innings uh, in the in the fourth innings of the match. And they had also played against West Indies at home, and they had beaten them 2-1 there. Uh, so, you know, while while Australia was doing whatever it was doing, Pakistan had, you know, again uh, risen in strength, so to speak, and. Uh, Australia was also, you know, shaping up well. They had beaten India. Uh, in India, they had beaten South Africa. They had beaten England at home, and you know, it was it was one of those periods in their history where they were doing really well and coming into their own. Richie Beno, as you mentioned, uh, you know, had become uh, the captain of the side by that time, and the earlier captain was Ian Johnson in 1956 when. You know, uh, Australia were completely blown out of the water by uh, Fuzzle. But Richie Beno, as part of that team, knew that matting wickets were here to stay. And so this time, 
you know, he really decided to prepare thoroughly. Uh, this was also one of those tours which perhaps had a little more political significance in that sense. And uh, the Prime Minister of uh, Australia at that time, Robert Menzies, who was an avid cricket watcher, avid cricket fan, he himself uh, personally wrote to each of uh, Beno's team members about this twin tour uh, or this tour of the subcontinent, India and Pakistan, and how uh, it was not only important, as you know, Vajpayee ended up saying later, so perhaps Menzi's message was on the same lines and uh, Benno again being the thorough man that he was, he went of his own accord uh, to the Ministry of External Affairs to understand you know, what this was all about. And uh, maybe this meeting with the External Affairs Ministry also helped in making sure that a large amount of uh, you know, Foster's beer uh, which was perhaps the favorite of all the cricketers from Australia, ended up entering uh, Pakistan without any problems at all. So, you know, with that, uh, all the other non-cricketing stuff taken care of, Benno set about making his team ready for the tour. So they were playing in some Queensland centenary match before the tour. And instead of, you know, uh, making sure that the team was doing well on turf, uh, Benno made sure that there was a matting pitch put up in Brisbane so that his entire team could, uh, could practice on it. And they also knew that you know things were not going to be in their favor as far as fairness uh, was concerned because Alan Davidson writes in his book that uh, in the previous tour, as per his experience, Fuzzel was allowed to wear a certain kind of footwear which the Australian bowlers would have also preferred to wear, but they were not allowed to. So they had to bowl on matting wickets with rubber-soled shoes, while Fuzzle's shoes actually had some kind of sprigs on them, on the on the bottom of them. So, you know, they knew that the dice was sort of loaded, uh, loaded um, uh, against them. The other thing was also, you know, how the matting was spread. So when it was Pakistan's turn to bat, the matting could be very, very well spread out, very tight so that the ball wouldn't do funny things off it. But when it was Australia's turn to bat, it could be, you know, a little wonky, a little loose in a couple of places with a pebble or two underneath so that, you know, Fuzzle was, let's say, twice the bowler that he was on a normal wicket. So they knew that, you know, all of these things could come into play. And so they prepared thoroughly. When they landed in Australia, uh, they had this guy called Lindsay Klein, who was, uh, you know, going to star in the first tie, uh, first ever tie test uh, in cricket, uh, uh, which was in Brisbane in 16. So he was the 12th man for Australia. And Benno had a very particular job for him. His task was to make sure that the matting was okay at all times. Not very loose, not very tight. Uh, same sort of matting wicket conditions for Australia when they batted and for Pakistan when they batted. He had to reach the team earlier. There are some accounts which even say that he had to sleep at the ground so that you know the the local ground staff was not doing uh, random stuff with the with the matting. So it was the twelfth man essentially. And you were you know mentioning to yourself how you would have been the twelfth man in this case. At least the twelfth man had an important job and perhaps as important as the other eleven. So Beno was so thoroughly prepared and. The first test we had was in Dhaka, which was obviously you know part of East Pakistan at that that time, and 
uh, at that time they had decided to bat first australia had decided to bat first in 1956 on winning the toss and this time benonu better he decided to bowl first uh, and kardar on pakistan side abdul hafiz kardar was you know already retired so it was fazil who was pakistan's captain now i take you to dhaka where it had rained very very heavily and what they did was on the damp and wet soil they placed the matting which is why and that was given as the reason that they couldn't play on turf because the ground is just so wet so we have to put up the matting and other than all the pace bowlers and spin bowlers that australia had they came up with a trump card out of nowhere there was this guy called ken mckay whose nickname was ironically slasher he turned out to be the hero for uh, australia on that matting wicket spread on damp soil as he ended up getting uh, you know second innings uh, wickets crucial second innings wicket which made australia win by by eight wickets in this test and that was a complete reversal from how pakistan were perceived to be stronger on matting wickets and perhaps it was uh, you know something which proved the point about uh, about beno's preparation and just to add to the story of how this unlikely hero emerged for uh, for australia who was not even a frontline bowler he was even bowling in shoes that were not his he was playing in shoes that were beno's shoes uh, because those shoes were bigger and he had already developed blisters in his feet because of the unfamiliar conditions uh there were other heroes too for australia there was neil harvey who batted well despite being unwell and you know delhi belly or karachi belly as as the west likes to call it that had already set in by that time in the australian camp but neil harvey batted very well despite being unwell and uh, there was a famous wicket keeper they had back in the day called wally grout who also you know did his job with the bat too so with this reversal happening you essentially had another change the next test was at lahore where a new stadium was making its debut which was called the bage jinna uh, and the lahore jimkhana ground and this was a turf wicket and as i mentioned to you earlier turf wicket which means a very good chance that fazal is not playing and indeed he did not play so you know just a side a bit of a side story about this stadium it now hosts it's no longer used for international cricket but it now hosts a very famous cricket museum which is run by a major curator of pakistan cricket history called najum latif and uh, while i haven't obviously been to the museum it's i mean given how he describes it mm-hmm. it's one of those uh, deep wishes of mine to be able to go and visit that place anyway i mean getting back to the test uh, Alan Davidson and the other guy uh, who was a pace bowler uh, left arm pace bowler called Ian McKiff who was later uh, banned for throwing <coughs> these guys uh, you know rattled the park side on the turf wicket uh, and then there was another batsman who was supposed to be as good as Bradman uh, didn't turn out to be obviously uh, Norm O'Neill who scored a great century to give Australia a major lead uh, after the pacers had done their job and then Pakistan uh, you know did much better in the second innings there's this guy called Syed Ahmed uh, who uh, you know led the resistance with a very fine century but then the 12th man 
in the earlier test lindsay klein it was his time to shine he came up with uh, you know a variety of spin that really worked well on uh, you know the lahore turf pitch and maybe it was all the hard work that he did looking at the pitch in the previous test and he was going to do more of it later which made sure that you know he really knew the pitch well and he used all of that knowledge and skill to really uh, you know get australia that win and even he was already unwell and he uh, you know someone else writes about how he was actually having shots of whiskey and hot water in lahore in pakistan while uh, bowling in the second innings to be able to just continue and somehow you know within all of that trouble he still ended up uh, playing a huge role in in uh, you know australia win this test all right so this conversation already has many layers but you did mention the matting part so with australia have like a you know a winning lead now 2-0 in this test series under richie beno so and you did mention about the use of matting and what is the overall matting narrative if someone still fails to understand you know what impact matting had on visiting teams and pakistan's strength if there is still you know more layers to it please share with us uh so sakib i think that uh, gives me an opportunity to talk about this seminal uh test in the history of cricket in pakistan which is the third test of the series that we are talking about which was held at karachi uh and karachi was obviously a matting wicket which meant that fazal was back in the team not much happened on the field of play uh i think none of the teams really scored big uh, pakistan had a particularly slow scoring rate and there was essentially no chance of a result very very soon into the test it was going to be a complete uh, snooze fest and perhaps the reason was that pakistan didn't really want to give australia the honor of a, of a clean sweep uh, but the interesting bit uh, which connects this test to matting wickets uh, happened you know away from the field of play uh, so one person who was watching this snooze fest or at least a part of it was this american guy called dwight eisenhower who was the us president at the time and he was in pakistan to meet um uh, mohammed uh, ayub khan who was you know had a military background and uh, was the was the whole and soul person in pakistan at that point in time so on the fourth day of this test uh, eisenhower is some seated somewhere in the stadium watching the test and not much is happening in the test uh, Uh, in terms of either wickets or runs or anything so you know some conversation happens now another character that comes into the story is uh, a guy called sam loxton who was a member of the 1948 invincible team that bradman led to england and we have already spoken about that tour in context of kardar uh, essentially he played against australia for the oxford cricket team before even making his debut uh, for pakistan So Loxton has been sent to Pakistan on this tour as the manager of the Australian team. Generally, uh, people who were part of the official establishment in the cricket board were sent. But I'm guessing since it was Pakistan, you know, the the ghost of Ian Botham, uh, Botham passed really took over, and everybody refused to go. So Loxton was the manager in that uh, in that sense. And uh, what happened was that. Ayub Khan was talking to Loxton at some stage during the test match and he asks Loxton 
uh, when Australia is going to invite Pakistan for a full tour uh, to Australia. And Loxton was essentially told by the cricket board that the answer to this question in all situations is no. But you know how some of these past players are, right? They want to add Mitch Masala to everything. And so he ends up telling uh, our friend uh, Ayub that Pakistan can forget about a tour to Australia till they continue to play on matting wickets. And that just, you know, enrages uh, Ayub no end. And then Eisenhower also adds to it. He says that he thought cricket was meant to be played on grass or on turf and not a mat that he was seeing at Karachi. And, you know, we have a rich, varied tapestry of how uh, Pakistani military dictators have been. And so in very typical military dictatorship style, uh, Ayub Khan straight away issues a diktat and says that at any level in Pakistan, not a single match will be played on matting wickets. Everything will happen on turf now. And given that it came directly from his office, it was sure to be followed. We don't really know what, you know, someone like Fazil, who was uh, very, very successful on matting wickets, thought about it. But it just changed overnight. And so this whole partnership essentially between USA and Australia caused this fundamental shift in Pakistan cricket. And Usman writes very nicely about how this change was not easy to deal with because the pitches that were produced, the turf wickets that were produced were not exactly of the standard that would produce the best cricketers for the Pakistan team from domestic cricket. But, I mean, you could just say that the change or the pace of change in this case was perhaps a bit much. Uh, but I think in the long run, the fact that Pakistan moved to turf wickets from and away from batting wickets was, was helpful for their cause. And uh, we all know what kind of skills that they develop uh, that they ended up developing after figuring out how to bowl on uh, wickets which were essentially unresponsive with reverse swing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Interesting. So, was this the end of Fazal, the cricketer, or this was the beginning of the end at least? Uh, I wouldn't say that. You know, I, I wouldn't agree with either of these two things because you do see. Uh, you know, flashes of brilliance that Fuzzle came with, came up with even later. But yeah, I mean, the fact that uh, matting wickets were taken away from him and taken away from him forever mm, did make some sort of an impact. So uh, Fuzzle was too good a bowler to be, you know, that one trick guy, that matting wickets, Fuzzle wicket uh, taker. If no matting wickets, then Fuzzle is nowhere in the picture. But yeah, I mean, it was something that did affect him in the final analysis, one could say. So, on a side analysis, can we also hold Dwight Eisenhower responsible for cricket never taking off in the US? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe if you know he was a little more enthusiastic about matting wickets, given how the situation was um, in, in US back in the day. We don't really know the details, or at least I don't know the details. Maybe matting wickets would have suited the, the, the American cricket scene more. But I think he uh, learned whatever he did from uh, watching that one test match in Karachi and decided that cricket itself was not for 
uh, for the US and they had better things to do and better sports to play. So, you know, again, as a little digression, we can continue with the, you know, the questions and, you know, that we have planned, but living in the US for so long, I don't often talk cricket to Americans, you know, now I did talk a lot when I came here and the hardest part was when you're trying to give someone a very quick crash course and, you know, you're not even used to doing one because in India, you never had to tell anyone what cricket is. So the hardest part was to sell someone that there is a draw and then they would mock you or laugh you. So there is no result and you play for, you know, so many days. But the beauty of the draw, usually, especially when a team is trying to save, uh, you know, defeat and just play for a draw and the other team's trying to get you out. There is just, you know, we all purists love that. This huge fascination. And now in this day and age, when most test matches produce results, draws becoming, you know, uh, a very unique, you know, aspect of the game that comes to full circle if a number nine or number seven, you know, play out the last couple of hours. So that was the hardest thing to explain. And even if it were to happen today, I think I would never... uh, I would never have a good time explaining this to Americans because, you know, their sports are like a one-day event and that too, like three hours for American football, two hours roughly of playing time. 48 minutes of basketball gets stretched to two and a half hours in the NBA. Same for hockey. Baseball can go sometimes into three hours if the scores are tied. But, you know, I think everything's still shorter than a T20 game, you know, which is three and a half hours and uh, including the, you know, the meal break in between. So yeah, this uh, this a little di- digression there. So let's so, get. So, sorry, go ahead. Just yeah. to just to respond to that, Sakib, I I I've really thought about this question, you know, because cricket is not a global game at all. It's it's essentially the um, it's a like a pet project of like ten odd countries in the world, like eight ten countries in the world. And I also figured out that there are other sports that I learned by uh, you know watching them. For example, tennis, and you're a big tennis fan yourself. You didn't learn tennis because there was someone who sat next to you and explained the rules to you, and then you started watching, right? You learned because it just seemed nice and it seemed like something you would have an interest in. And then as you went on, you figured out the rules and you spoke to someone else about the rules and you figured out strategies and tactics and individual players and their styles and all of that. So my sense is that the way we want to spread the game and especially in, you know, in the US where we are always worried, draw, result, such a long duration, etc. My sense is that maybe the idea of spreading the game through explaining the rules isn't the best. Maybe highlights of a classic test match is the way to go about it. And there you sort of try and explain the bare essentials and then let them go on that journey on their own. So I don't know. I've, I've often thought about this. I've not obviously tried this approach of mine that I suggest, but maybe there's got to be some difference. In no, no, I, I agree with yeah. you again, a diversion, because this is a very organic way to, uh, you know, spread the game. And you're right. Sometimes it's tough to sell someone that cricket is better than baseball or slightly older and it's, you know, more skillful because you'll be doing in my case, disservice to baseball because I've never warmed up to baseball because of cricket, there was a direct correlation. I played softball. And when I went to play softball with my friends, I never, I, I, I was fielding without the, the glove and I would take catches and they were saying, what are you, what's wrong with you? I said, look, this is, I play with a harder ball and I can stop this ball. And they say, whoa. And, and I, that was a proud moment because I was one of a, you know, flat-footed fielder in cricket. And here, like, you know, Yanks are telling me that I'm a good fielder. 
So, but uh, to, to prove your point, I'll give you two quick examples. Like of one, my friend, uh, I met this guy in college. He used to take me to NBA games. He took me to a tennis tournament in New Haven. We saw Goran Ivanisevic. He was my first friend with a car. So again, you know, like it sounds like a selfish friendship, but no, we were good. But he drove me and a couple other guys around who were international students. So we finally reconnected after like, you know, a gap of 15 years. He found me on Twitter. And then, yeah. you know, he's been following my tennis podcast. And then one day he, we picked up the phone and caught up and he said, and he asked me, what do you know of Raul Dravid? I said, why are you asking about Raul Dravid? You're an Irishman. What do you know about Raul Dravid? And that to an American one. He said, no, no, I was working in UAE for a few years and uh, everybody and their mother loved Raul Dravid. He was the best Indian batsman that time. And cricket was on TV all the time. I started following cricket and I became a huge fan. So th- there you go. There was more organic. Exactly. He yeah. took the right clues. And I'm sure like he wasn't a fan of Dravid, like the blue, the, the colored clothing player, but the, the white, you know, the test cricket. And uh, not to say the Dravid didn't make contribution. So, so th- there you go. That proves your point. And the other one is in my current uh, workspace, one of the project managers was drawn by a bunch of Indian guys into IPL fantasy. And during the fantasy, he learned the game and he fell in love with the T20 game. Now, every time I would go to his cube before the pandemic, when the IPL was on, he had his phone and, you know, he had Hotstar and he was watching cricket on the phone. <laughs> and he, he used to go to West Indies, go to Florida to see the T20 league. And he's seen India play West Indies there two times. Wow. And, and he thinks, and he's not into test cricket. He's not into 50 over cricket. He just loves T20, but he learned it on the job because uh, his, uh, you know, project, you know, fellow project mates were all into IPL and they invited him and, and to make things worse. After the first edition, he was the undisputed king. He won the IPL Fantasy League three years in a row. <laughs> you know, and then and, and we would not even be on the same projects. And one day, one of my neighbor who I sit next to, she said, oh, this guy was looking for you. And I'm saying, why is he looking for me? So I go to him. I said, I, I gave my deadline, you know, like I submitted, you know, my, my task last week. So I go to his queue. We say, oh, I'm picking my lineup. You think I should play Russell? I said, dude, I mean, I, just, I haven't even put my bag yet. And you reach out to my pretty much my manager and I go and check in with you and you ask me if I should play Russell. I said, I have no idea. You're kicking my ass. I don't want to help you. So, but again, that just shows the point. If, yeah, uh, yeah. if approached the right way, cricket is a sell. Maybe I was approaching the wrong way in my youth. I was comparing it directly to baseball. and It was becoming a debate. And then they were yeah. mocking the drawn test. But anyway, so that was a good digression. So let's go back to Australia and Pakistan. So now I want you to, you know, walk us through couple of Pakistan tours is a one-off one test tour the Pakistan goes there I think they're scheduled very quickly because they're they're also touring New Zealand and it's a four-day test and then they go for a full-fledged series later on so unpack it step by step so the listeners know because maybe I'm not doing a good job chronologically of what's happening but I'm curious to know why was that a four-day test and then what happened there and also talk about some of the new international names that that might have made their debut in those series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Sakib, right after, you know, the series in 1959 that we spoke about, uh, uh, there were major changes that happened in Pakistan cricket. And by the time October 1964 came around, when Australia, uh, you know, came to, uh, came to Pakistan to play one test, Pakistan cricket was properly in the doldrums. Uh, and they had, when they had gone to uh, England in 1962, uh, and 
they were completely completely beaten uh, very convincingly in that in that tour then fazil uh, uh, you know had uh, had his pakistan team which drew nil nil with india in a completely uh, lifeless and boring uh, test series that happened in india no no uh, team wanted to win there uh then they lost to england again 1-0 uh, at home under uh, intiaz's leadership so essentially a series of either boring draws or losses home away and a lot of stuff was happening politically that is perhaps the topic of discussion for another podcast altogether uh, a lot of stuff was happening in the economy that basically had you know pakistan down and out for the count and in this sort of situation uh, australia uh came visiting the captain this time was bob simpson uh and first they toured india this time they drew their 1-1 and this was again on the back of an ashes trip of course where they had you know won again so australia was uh striking a good rich vein of form and pakistan was you know nowhere to be found and perhaps the the aspect of this test that proves us how bad the situation for pakistan was is that they had six debutants for this test and i mean we can go into the record books to figure out which team had the most apart from the you know teams that started playing their test cricket in a particular test six debutants in a team of 11 which was obviously huge uh, and their captain was hanif mohammed who was who had essentially shaped into a very very good batsman Uh, by that time but given the team situation etc he was mostly playing a rear guard act and i think the reason for him uh, to become captain was also because you know no one else was left everyone had been tried and you know discarded in some sense or the other but i mean again pakistan cricket so a twist has to be there uh, they started off very very well they had uh, a great opening partnership uh, there were two guys khalid abdullah and abdul qadir who had an opening stand of 250 odd runs and they reached 400 plus uh, in their first innings and we'll quickly move ahead to you know the end of day 3 where pakistan was actually in the ascendancy at the end of day 3 uh, they were leading australia by 90 runs and they still had nine wickets remaining and so you would assume that on the fourth day uh, pakistan would really step on the paddle and take their chances to probably secure a famous win against australia but uh, you know you can say that the way in which hanif had shaped up as a cricketer with now him being captain was reflecting in how his team was playing and you know in all of day 4 they ended up scoring just 220 runs uh, they even batted for 30 minutes on the fifth and final day uh they set up a huge total for australia to win uh 342 was their target and australia did start off well but you know there's this guy called ian redpath who uh, sort of figured out that the win was probably in, you know not uh in the scheme of things anymore and so he shut shop and uh you know that's where the test ended so a great uh beginning to the test and by the end of third day you could see how pakistan could have won it but then it just never never really took it, off it, is this a match that you had mentioned to me earlier that uh, bob simpson scored centuries twin centuries in this test or yes yes okay. yes he did score uh, you know a century in each innings which was obviously a great achievement 
but the guy that i want to really talk about here uh, sakib is this guy called khalid ibadullah absolutely brilliant story so this guy is almost a very very good young shining star uh, is on the fringe of the national selection uh, you know for for quite a few series before he gets his chance uh, you know and and makes this stupendous 100 in this test and then again you know without getting into too much details he again you know goes off the radar a little bit doesn't get as many chances as he would have liked to and he figures out that you know maybe this is not the scene for him so without too much money and you know with a lot of belief in his luck and his fortune he travels to england and starts and tries to start some sort of a career cricket career there and because he has obviously played for pakistan the qualification rules about when you can play for a particular county um, those etc do not allow him to get a gig proper solid gig right away but everyone knows that he is good in in the county circuit in the warwickshire circuit that is the county that he sort of became attached to and he is playing non first class games or essentially not non first class but non championship county championship games which means that if uh let's say india is going to england and if warwickshire is playing england uh, india then khalid could be in the team so he goes there and then he you know goes from there to uh, new zealand uh, becomes a domestic cricketer in new zealand ends up playing against pakistan multiple number of times in his career for these domestic teams in england and new zealand and becomes a really really good batsman but the pakistan career sort of never really took off uh, quite you know a question mark as to how and when that happened uh, and there is a beautiful story about how one of his proteges was uh, uh, the new zealand batsman glen turner who himself went on to do great things but when glen turner in a particular first class season ends up scoring 1000 runs uh, which is you know which was still considered to be a great achievement back in the day uh, his mentor khalid ibadullah comes on to the field of play with a little gin and tonic and gives it to him to celebrate the moment and uh, i mean if nothing else that tells you how good he could have been for pakistan cricket if not as a batsman but you know as an overall cricket personality and there was some talk about him being the pakistan cricket coach for the 1996 cricket world cup never really took off he had grown very accustomed to ways of cricket in new zealand in england which was perhaps even then you know a much more professional setup and so he was uh, he was not of pakistan he was of pakistan but he never became of pakistan and uh, in the book uh, bite on green which is obon and heller's uh, story book about pakistan cricket this they title his chapter as the one that got away and to me that is perhaps a great reflection of you know who this guy was so yeah i mean just a very very typical pakistan story there so he was also one of the debutants in this test series or he was yeah he made his debut in this test and scored this uh, 800 on debut against the australian team Uh, what a story! And Pakistan can make, I think, few more names to this kind of a list where careers, yes. you know, could have been longer. And you know, uh, yeah, we probably can talk about that on another podcast, like you said. So again, yes. yeah. So thanks for setting up my question because you know I kind of missed that uh, one-off test 
So I remember Bob Simpson, but I missed that. So thanks for just setting the record straight. So now let's talk about my previous question, yes. where yeah. Pakistan finally got to play in Australia. The first one of tests was a four-day yes. test affair. And then yes. the big series in which I believe uh, certainly Ian Chappell made his debut. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So yeah, I mean, uh, right after uh, Australia had played this one of uh, drawn test in uh, Pakistan, uh, the next thing on the agenda for Pakistan was to go and play a full test series in New Zealand, which was their first tour to New Zealand too. And somehow, you know, the powers that be aligned in such a way that Pakistan also got an opportunity to play uh, in Australia, a test in Australia right before this New Zealand tour. And that included a test at Melbourne plus a handful of uh, first-class matches. And it was a four-day test match, as you mentioned, which was a bit of a rarity for uh, Australia uh, because all their home test matches started off being timeless and then were five days. So it's very curious that that happened. Uh, You wouldn't tend to believe that as far back as, you know, 1964 also um, a tour to Australia was being used as some sort of preparatory tour for a tour to New Zealand. Uh, But I mean, that's just how it was. And that was the case, even though Australia didn't have any other teams visiting it in in that summer. So Hanif was obviously still the Pakistan's skipper and uh, he had a very young team at his disposal while Australia... uh, was, you know, trying out different things because they knew uh, the potential of this Pakistan team and had a fair idea of it. And so they were trying to figure out which players could they take to West Indies, which was their next tour. And as you mentioned, uh, one of those new faces was, uh, you know, Ian Chappell indeed. So he made his debut against Pakistan. Uh, so Simpson wins the toss and, you know, uh, Pakistan bat first and Hanif, the batsman, is still, you know, in great shape. He scores a century. Uh, Sayyad Ahmed, who is going to be a big uh, part of our podcast later, he scores well, uh, 80 odd runs. And so uh, Pakistan are doing well, but they lose, you know, the, the debutant centurion of the previous test, which was Kadir, Abdul Kadir. And uh, Hanif was one of their main batsmen or the main batsman. He was the captain. And now he was also going to be the wicket keeper because their regular keeper was injured. So suddenly something happens in this test. Australia figure out that, you know, if, since it's a four-day test, they have to really get onto uh, uh, things and score quickly. So they end up scoring uh, 448 in less than 100 overs. And then, uh, you know, because their regular opener, the regular wicketkeeper, Kadir, is injured. The pace bowler who picks up six wickets in Australia's innings, you wouldn't believe it, but he was sent in as the opener because Kadir was injured. Instead of promoting a batsman uh, you know, to the higher slot, they sent in uh, Kadir. So it didn't really matter much in the scheme of the test match and Pakistan were perhaps comfortably placed at 130 for three at the end of, uh, you know, day three, with just one day remaining. So, not much could have happened on the third day, but Pakistan was able to resist whatever form of attack Australia had in mind, and they even got Kadir to sort of play a solid innings, uh, and Hanif was unfortunate to be given out, stumped incorrectly. Uh, I think what happened was uh, 
he was the the stumps or the bales had been dislodged by the wicketkeeper's hands and not you know uh, it wasn't a proper stumping but in any case i mean uh, the target for australia was just 166 and then the stuff that happened was again very pakistan like very farcical because even the first two overs that pakistan bowled took very 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 long and they were wasting time so much but the umpires didn't waste any time in giving them a warning and you know it was raining all around uh, i mean rain was imminent and pakistan continued on its slow merry way with the ball and just 11.5 overs were ultimately possible in this test and i think it was this test if i remember correctly in which the end was so horrendous that there is there is a picture of uh, the pakistan fast bowler arif but uh, running to the crease almost like you know someone who is out of his senses and then uh, falling on the crease as if to show that the ground was so bad that you know he couldn't even bowl properly so another draw and another test match which sort of meandered towards nothing for the most part but in the end something happens which doesn't perhaps give us great cricket but it ended up giving us great stories no i think this really is very interesting stuff uh and now you know as we know of pakistan and australia today the next series which is you know uh, one of the final penultimate points here is where you can walk us through that uh, did it shape up certain bad blood leading up to future series because hindsight it's easy but since you yeah. read these books and you kind of have the context set which context is always important so this brings us to the 70 to 73 series and now a certain uh, kardar is also back running uh, cricket affairs in pakistan because i want to do a deeper dive after this series onto kardar the father like figure of pakistan cricket and maybe draw yeah. some comparison with uh, the certain imran khan but yeah. uh, so what is this series you know so special even imran i believe you told me says this is a series people who played in the series talk about the series in the realm of pakistan australia folklore so how important the series and what went wrong here i mean you know what are the components should we look at players or should we look at test by test what is the context proper context for this according to you abhi uh, so sakib i mean this is uh, you know perhaps one of those test series in the history of pakistan australia cricket where uh, a lot of things changed forever and even before this test series started you have to realize that a lot of stuff had changed within pakistan and within pakistan cricket we are talking about 7273 which means uh, pakistan has gone through another partition bangladesh is no longer uh, you know part of pakistan uh, democracy is back no more military dictators and even there we will come uh, back to that later but kardar had perhaps a role to play uh, kardar himself was back into cricket after a long gap Uh, after having retired perhaps a little bit prematurely after uh, the west indies series so he comes back as first the chairman of selectors and then as the president of the cricket board and he does a lot of work uh, with respect to rebuilding pakistan cricket from the ground up but uh, ayub is gone yaya is gone uh, and you know it's it's just a completely different pakistan and not just as a cricket team but also as a nation which uh, you know is is going to face australia in their home ground in naya pakistan <laughs> yes exactly so uh, 
you know, you have so many things that are going on with respect to the context, uh, as I as I mentioned, and then uh, you know the power wrangling in Pakistan cricket continued as ever, and so many new names had come up. Intikhab Alam was the captain for them, and Asif Iqbal was was the vice captain. Uh, Chapelli, who was one of the fresh faces in the last Australia Pakistan uh, Test, had already ascended to the captaincy, and this was a proper three-test tour in, uh, you know, for Pakistan in Australia. Uh, Intikab's team perhaps had little experience of Australian conditions, uh, and that was very, very understandable. But a lot of people who were to become big names for Pakistan cricket, Zaheer Abbas, Sarfraz Nawaz, Majid Khan, Wasim Bari, all of these guys were to sort of take their initial formative steps in, in cricket uh, you know, with this tour in international cricket, especially with this tour, with this very difficult tour of uh, Australia. So uh, you have the same context for Australia again, wherein they had a tour uh, to the West Indies, which was you know going to come up. And you know, back in the day, all of these tours followed a very clear rhythm pattern. England is Australia is going to finish a tour to England and then it's going to travel to Pakistan and India. And after, you know, the Australian summer is over, they are going to head to West Indies in, you know, once in a couple of years or something. So again, it was the fact that Australia was going to go to West Indies soon. And so they gave a chance to many of their rising stars from domestic cricket. And you wouldn't believe it, but one of the guys who played in a tour match for this team called the Western Australia Colts was a famous, famous hockey player called Rick, uh, Rick Charlesworth. Uh, he wasn't even a first-class cricketer, but he got a chance to play against the Pakistan national team. And he was obviously to leave cricket and go on to become a major hockey player, hockey coach, etc. So, uh, so I let mean, me interrupt you there. So is this again, uh, you know, I'm, I'm living it vicariously through your readership here. So is this an element of, uh, we know what Ashes means and, you know, West Indies also yeah. had a bigger rivalry. So are they still not taking Pakistan seriously despite giving them a three-test invite? Or is it just like always about the Ashes and they're doing musical chairs about the kind of, you know, 11 who's going to appear here? I mean, what was Australia's composition? Like how many of Ashes hopefuls did take part in the series, just for my curiosity? How many of the regulars so, were thrown in? Sakib, so, so I don't think that it was completely a case of, you know, not taking Pakistan seriously, at least at this stage. It was just uh, one of those situations where, uh, you know, the cricketers that had to be given a chance were given a chance together. And yes, they had an eye on the West Indies series coming up, uh, you know, and they were planning for that. And perhaps my answer is also based in hindsight, because many of the folks that uh, you know, who got a chance in this series for Australia ended up becoming major cricketers. So uh, these guys were still very, very good. And I mean, they were going to prove themselves in the international arena. But you cannot deny that there was that element of making sure that the cricketers that they wanted to try out were tried out against Pakistan and not directly tried out in West Indies. So, yeah, I, I mean... It breaks my heart to say it, but yes, I think Australia was still not completely taking Pakistan cricket in in that uh, you know tone of seriousness, so as to not take any chances and 
play their absolute best 11 so that uh, you know they they win all test matches outrightly etc it was still a case of you know giving some of the new guys uh, the new guys a chance and the other thing that didn't help was the fact that even this tour was hastily scheduled and if the the uh, tour matches that were given to them were you know absolute proper matches with proper first class teams uh, being the opposition this pakistan team at least i believe could have done much much better uh, but i mean then again when you when you look back and see the scorecards for uh, you know the the first class games you don't have too many details available uh, about them but even rod marsh who was the australian test cricket uh, test keeper his highest first class score is 236 and that came against pakistan for western australia in a first class match in this tour so uh, i mean when you say that australia wasn't taking pakistan uh, that seriously and you then figure out that maybe pakistan itself wasn't taking itself you know very seriously at least till this stage so Uh, difficult question to answer but i mean we can only look at it in hindsight in that sense yeah that does make sense so let's talk about some of the key components the key pivotal players in the series uh, dk lilly that name came up when we were yeah. prepping for this podcast and then sayed ahmed is another name from the other yeah. side that deserves a lot of mention uh, yeah. i don't know for for like good reasons or not but i think that's part of the narrative that can't be ignored yeah 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 so i mean i'll i'll quickly go through the first test because it didn't have a lot happening except i think it was this test match if i'm not wrong where uh, you know the tal uh, there was this guy called talat ali who was the uh, uh, pakistan opener on debut and he was the last man out in the second innings of the test after retiring hurt in uh, the first innings because he had a broken thumb um, after facing a ball of lily and uh there is a very nice picture which was published in the australian newspapers back in the day which shows you know talat ali trying to face the spin of ashley mallet with just one hand being on the bat because the other hand uh, had a broken thumb and so uh you know it was it was still a loss for pakistan they were blown away by as you mentioned dk lilly and bob masi but uh, i mean talat ali for me sort of uh, stood out uh, in this test the second test is where you know things really start becoming interesting and interesting in the sense that it it featured a classic pakistan collapse and this was at the mcg uh, uh, so chapelli decided to uh, bat first and they got uh, a big massive score of 441 for 5 and then he declared uh, to get the game going you had the pakistan batting finally coming good uh max walker was debuting in this test and another big name that was uh there in this test was jeff thompson uh pakistan actually ended up uh going past uh, australia's score and how 574 for eight declared and you know the needle is starting to come in here intikab alam had to essentially declare the innings closed he could have perhaps had his last two batsmen bat for a little more but he had to declare the innings closed because lily would not stop bowling bouncers at the stalenders and maybe intikab was you know really scared uh, or he was just trying to make a point uh, scared for his debut and uh, for his pace bowlers or he was just trying to make a point but he ended up declaring the innings closed and 
Australia was again answering the challenge with full vigor, 425 all out. Uh, now we come to the fifth day. Pakistan target is just 293, and from 128 for five, which was in itself not a good position to be in, they go all out uh, 200. So very very uh, classic collapse from Pakistan. 293, maybe it wasn't achievable. Uh, you know, on foreign shores, uh, with the kind of uh, attack that Australia had, even though you know Jeff Thompson, Max Walker were debutants, but I would still say that two ninety three was almost close to impossible for such a young team. Having said that, they could have perhaps drawn the test with you know just a little less than a day to play, but they couldn't do that. Uh, Thompson essentially went wicketless in this test, and. of all of us know how big he became later in his career but he hadn't told anyone that he played through this entire test with a completely broken bone in his foot and right after this test his career sort of appeared to be going nowhere before you know a lot of things changed for him and he came back into the test arena like an absolute champion uh the other thing where you know more needle starts coming in is this spell that lily bowled to the veteran pakistan opener sayed ahmed and uh, this is where you know ashley mallet narrates a beautiful story so lily was essentially irritated a lot by these two guys in the first test at adelaide the two pakistan openers because according to lily they were taking a lot of time between overs between balls just talking mid pitch about god knows what and he didn't understand a word of it obviously because they were talking in their mother tongue and lily was so irritated that he when he was ready at the top of his bowling run up uh, and ready to bowl and these guys were still talking or something he started making these chook calls which is i mean i i have to do it to be able to explain it but it's essentially something like chook 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 you know and the pakistan uh, batsmen are just completely startled at this and you know whatever mind games lily was trying to play or whether it was just him having you know his regular share of fun uh, perhaps with some racist undertone uh, undertones if we have to look back on the incident today but he's just having fun according to him and the pakistanis are startled by the entire thing uh, so sayed ahmed is essentially laid low in the first innings of this mcg test uh, he he has to retire hurt he comes back to bat uh, you know bat later uh, and you know nothing much happens after that but in the second innings he is just trying to hit one back to lily just you know patting the ball back or stroking it back and lily takes the ball feels the ball uh, you know in in uh, his follow through and he just mock throws the ball as if he would you know throw the stumps down sayed the already startled sayed because of the calls that lily was making is suddenly staggered and he falls down to the ground in an attempt to get back and i mean ashley mallet says that perhaps this entire series of incidents got into a, uh, his head a little bit and the next ball he's out he you know gives off a simple catch to mid on and you know essentially this is perhaps the beginning of the sayed ahmed saga which i'm going to tell you about later but it's also how dk lily and pakistan figure out that 
you know it's going to be a long beautiful relationship between the between these two entities so yeah i i mean the headlines that came up in the newspaper uh, after this loss were very very uncharitable to pakistan uh, they were just one word panikstan and uh, i mean it's perhaps uh, very sad that it continues to be true for their cricket for uh, you know many years to come but i mean that's just perhaps a newspaper uh, editor copywriter being very very clever so the mcg test would you know perhaps in my mind be the start of the needle that you mentioned and things were perhaps only going to become either more exciting more interesting or more uh, vitriolic depending on what your outlook is about these things now this leaves us to the last test of the series so what happens to pakistan are they like you know bruised from that kind of a defeat because i'm sure uh, like you said you know some uh, there's some ra- racial undertones here involved and obviously it's very easy to dissect that from hindsight uh, so this is like a new uh, barrage for for pakistan because they haven't really told australia that much and now they're playing this uh, bowling attack that's not giving an inch plus they are also trying to mock them and uh, this is becoming what steve war would uh, would later say mental disintegration this was probably the beginnings so talk about you know last test with what happened in the previous test where lily came into his own and uh, yeah i'm i'm more curious what what unfolds here next for this series yeah so uh, sakib i mean if if the second test uh, you know panikstan was a proper heartbreak for the pakistan cricket fan back in the day uh, it's it's only going to get worse in the third test uh, this was a greenish sydney pitch more suited to pace bowling and particularly the kind of uh, bowling that uh, the new fellow max walker was you know uh, doing and uh, he's going to play a pivotal role in in this test so the good thing for pakistan is that sarfraz uh, you know has finally figured out how to bowl in these conditions on these kind of pitches and with the other pace bowler salim altaf he uh, manages to keep australia down to just 334 in their first innings and pakistan has a new opener uh, who's actually a veteran in the team uh, this guy is nasimul ghani uh, he is essentially a left arm slow bowler but he is opening the batting which is you know giving some headly verity vibes uh, vibes for uh, for pakistan so he did his job well mushtaq mohammed is also around now he scores a century and uh, pakistan end up scoring a uh, uh, securing a tiny lead of 26 uh, lily had actually gone off the field uh, because he was injured and he had just bowled 10 overs by then uh, so there is a new hero for for australia with the ball and very unlikely hero at that which is the captain's younger brother greg chapel who ended up taking a fifer uh, and then when salim altaf and sarfraz nawaz get their chance again to bowl at the australian batsmen they do a fabulous job and by end of day 3 australia are at 94 for 7 and it i mean for all money it looks like pakistan is going to have their first win on australian soil but they have a stubborn lower order partnership uh, and australia ends up with 184 not something like 100 110 which could have been the case from 94 for 7 very easily 
even with 150 one uh, 59 as the target uh, you know pakistan had a great great chance but this is where max walker really comes into his own in his debut series and uh, the pitch aids him the conditions are suited to him and he has lily back who is not bowling as quickly as he usually did back in the day but he's still around he's still bowling proper line and length and max walker is perhaps emboldened by that and he takes a six for in uh, these helpful conditions and pakistan is finished off at just 106 so another heartbreaking loss for pakistan in uh, the face of a pretty small target very achievable target but you know as you mentioned at the beginning this is one tour where pakistan really understood how to play cricket in australia and they also understood the non skill parts of cricket in australia which you know was as you said mocking mental disintegration and sledging and all of that and imran khan wrote about this in uh, 1990 that this aggression that the pakistani players learned in this tour was going to take them uh, you know forward in a in a very very big way and the next tour was obviously 1976 77 in which the sydney 77 uh, match is an iconic iconic win for pakistan in australia and uh, all of them all of these young guys in the pakistan team essentially became battle hardened and when you lose uh, you know test matches like the one at mcg and the one at sydney in a series like this uh, it either leaves scars for you or it tells you that you know nothing worse can uh, happen now and i mean that is essentially what happened to uh, you know pakistan cricket and uh, i'm not going to keep it uh, you know uh, too broad but i would definitely say that there was a proper change in the power uh, balance uh, when it came to pakistan australia cricket uh, you know after this series All right so we still have to talk about Sayed Ahmed right because what happened there did he ever play for Pakistan because uh, this is very interesting stuff what you're telling me and uh, yeah. just uh, walk us through that and uh, and also like if you have a tidbit mention on how was the 7273 series in terms of exposure for Zaheer Abbas did he score some runs did he announce his arrival what kind of experience did he take back so if you want to address Sayed Ahmed first and then maybe a tiny bit on Zaheer uh so sayed ahmed is essentially one of those typical uh, pakistan stories again and you know at the end of the podcast uh, i perhaps uh, understand that a lot of these stories you know are just about that very cliched nature of pakistan cricket there is a lot of other stuff also happening but sayed ahmed is again one of those you know uh, stories that you just can't make head or tail of so sayed ahmed is of brilliant brilliant batsman for pakistan and has been so for a long time he's a proper uh, uh, you know opener in that sense who has played in multiple conditions and has done well across so many uh, you know uh, in against against so many teams he essentially perhaps develops a block against lily and he doesn't want to face him and he declares himself Uh, unfit for the third test in which pakistan get bowled out for just 106 uh, at the end and lose very very badly and kardar as you know is already at the helm of affairs he doesn't take to this very very kindly and so he is just completely completely eliminated from the team 
and he doesn't even get you know a proper look in in terms of explaining his cause to anyone there are stories about how he wrote letters in which he claimed to be in his own blood to the powers that be back in pakistan he writes a letter to uh, uh, bhutto even uh, so that you know they could listen to his case but once kardar had taken a decision there was obviously no going back from that uh, and before the pakistan team uh, you know goes to new zealand to play uh, some test cricket there sayed ahmed is actually left in pak in australia he's not even taken to new zealand he's not even sent back to pakistan he's just left in australia and somehow he you know makes his way back to uh, pakistan what do you mean left in australia so <laughs> they just don't take him i mean he's he's just left for good and he's never going to play for wow. uh, pakistan again there is a proper life man somehow he makes his way back to pakistan uh, tries a couple of times to make some entries back into domestic cricket etc never plays international cricket again gets in a few first class matches mostly pointless i mean he's he's well past his uh, best days by then uh, and then things take another turn in 1982 he joins this movement called tablighi jamaat uh, and you know becomes a very very religious man a proper preacher and in the changing days of pakistan cricket during those very very uh, turbulent years 80s 90s etc he tries to make some headway into the pakistan cricket team of those times uh, isn't very successful and finally saeed anwar is his first high profile uh, you know entrant which uh, or who he brings into the fold of tablighi jamaat and since then as we know there are so many other cricketers who have entered this fold uh, entered this sect and uh, Sayed Ahmed is now a very content man. Uh, he, the final numbers for him uh, show him to average forty plus in forty-one tests, and given the time that he played in, that's a very very good record. It was just that one test where you could say that the team really needed him after being zero two down, um, you know, in in a foreign country, and he. perhaps developed a block against lily or he had some other issues going on but just that refusal to one uh, to play one test at the end of a series meant that he completely lost his career i mean the jury is out to say whether you know that was a good thing because he ended up becoming such a religious person or such a spiritual person or whether he would have been uh you know of much greater service to pakistan had he continued playing cricket and opening the batting but i mean that's just how uh you know sayed ahmed's story uh, turned out to be oh that's quite the fascinating chapter so abhi this is a brilliant chat let's wrap this up and i have a question here for abdul hafiz kardar right and pakistan is known for his larger than life cricket figures so when you were uncovering kardar through these the, the book these books you read from usman in other books you mentioned uh yeah. did a comparison come to your mind with a certain imran khan is there even a fair comparison because that that's the comparison i want to draw but then uh not in in terms of like the kind of cricket he played but in terms of the impact in the larger than life that's where i'm coming from but uh, floor is yours how do you feel that question does it have its own merit 
No, uh, I would definitely say that you know Abdul Kardar's uh, Abdul Hafiz Kardar's uh, shadow uh, loomed large over Pakistan cricket for many many years. There were various power figures that came in and went out of Pakistan cricket, and for the most part, Kardar held his own. And he was a very very complex man, and I think a lot of people have written a lot about him and how he ran Pakistan cricket and. how he was as a person but i don't think we will perhaps be uh, you know we'll perhaps unpack him completely as you say uh, there is a certain aspect of him which uh, feels bad for what was happening in west pakistan uh, he's also someone who was a major part of the entire movement that bhutto ran uh to bring about democracy in the country after a gap of many many years he also has a role to play in the government and he mentions how removing uh some sort of song written by rabindranath tagore from the curriculum in the school uh, in the schools for west pakistan was one of his saddest moments so you see that he's not just cricket first of all he's he's like a well rounded personality in that sense and obviously the education at park uh, at oxford and uh, you know having those years there would have also you know uh, given something to his character and to his personality uh, when it came to cricket uh, in oxford he was you know one of the swashbuckling cricketers he batted really well um, you know perhaps much more uh attacking than what he did for uh, uh pakistan when he was playing for the national team or captaining the national team uh he was also a very good left arm bowler left arm medium pace left arm spin jack fingleton rated him very very highly and in this just an interesting incident where in that match against uh australia while he was playing for oxford uh what happens is somehow bill brown who had already been run out by vinu mankad at the non strikers end uh, earlier he gets the impression that uh, you know kardar is going to play the same trick on him and so there's this um, incident that uh, singleton talks about where bill brown redraws the crease with the edge of his bat so that you know uh, kardar doesn't do the same thing to him as as mankad so essentially he's a proper character when it comes to uh, life outside cricket and he is a different cricketer before pakistan and you know after he started playing for pakistan he's given the captaincy role quite early uh, does so many things his own way uh, focuses really hard on uh, you know fast bowling uh, make sure that he is able to put in some sort of a culture with respect to fitness by having these camps before the series uh so he's a very very good reader of the game and i mean there are so many cricketers who played with him uh, who played under him who go on to mention how his readership of the game was astute he worked very well with his bowlers and i mean while fazal obviously has in, has his rivalry with him and is not very uh nice to him i would say in his own book uh you know by reading through accounts which are you know not biased in favor of one or the other that fazal also did particularly well uh, under kardar so in the cricketing sense and 
you know perhaps a little bit of an extra cricketing sense kardar is quite the character and a very wholesome character at that but then he comes in with a strong set of flaws a uh, very very uh, strong sense of right and wrong so much so that what he believes to be wrong is wrong for everyone for the world if he didn't like a player that player could you know almost not play for pakistan had a major role to play in getting hanif to retire and hanif had served pakistan cricket for so long uh, so well with the bat uh, in the role of captain and even you know kept wickets as we saw earlier but he just made sure that you know uh, this guy hanif was just completely eliminated after a point in time and the threats could be of any nature it could be about the fact that the other brothers were not going to give get a proper go if hanif didn't retire by himself uh, or it could be about just his performance and his opinion on hanif as communicated to hanif changed very very quickly in a short span of time but it was just that he had decided hanif was not going to be part of his plan any longer and so hanif had to retire uh, he was also one of those guys who you know gave a lot of focus to bringing in young new fresh players from the domestic circuit onto the international scene believed in giving chances to people early but then there is also another side of it which says that he gave chances to these young players and made good cricketers out of them because he knew that the benevolent dictator style that he liked to employ was only going to work with such guys and he could have only one fuzzle as some sort of uh, you know an alternate power center in the team and not many more so uh, you know complete contradiction uh, in many ways and then obviously there is his tenure as uh, you know the cricket board uh, uh, president where he did tremendous work to grow domestic cricket in pakistan to give it a more organized shape and look and feel uh, but still you know when it came to incidents like sayed ahmed for example his word was the final word and you could have a great opener you know uh, just being left alone in australia without any uh you know proper arrangements even being made for him to return to his country but that was just it is another guy called mohammed ilyas who also ends up uh, you know being uh, in the bad books of kardar and he essentially has to go through a pretty similar fate so uh i mean there are so many things that you could say about kardar and i could go on perhaps but you get a very strong sense from whatever uh you know you can come across that you will never be able to fully describe him and to answer your question about whether you know you i saw shades of him in imran i mean kardar himself believed that pakistan was perhaps not ready for something that was not dictatorial and so he did what he had to do to you know actually uh, action those words of his and imran perhaps saw it and got inspired or you know maybe didn't give much heed to it but yeah i mean in many ways the way he ran cricket in pakistan uh, it couldn't be to the same extent as kardar because kardar's times were also simpler times there were so many other things at play when you know imran reached the throne of uh, uh, thons so one would call it 
but even then i mean if imran had decided a certain player was going to play he was going to play uh, imran had miandad as an alternate power center for a large part of his career imran was also someone who gave a lot of fast bowlers a lot of chances dooth uh, was focus for imran too so you have a lot of these similarities between imran and kardar uh, but i mean just for the length of uh, time for which kardar ruled pakistan cricket in many many ways i don't think there's going to be um, another age uh, kardar ever all right i think that uh, really was quite the episode i thank you for staying with me for over 2 hours uh, you are leaving a lot of food for thought not for this episode when i'll re listen to it while editing but also plan has some plans to bring you back on another episode and we'll discuss it offline uh, brilliant uh, you know oration of uh, these uh, important chronological events of pakistan versus australia and it's a very timely release because there's a historic test series coming up after hiatus of 24 years thank you abhishek chopra i really enjoyed it hopefully the listeners learn and walk away with a lot of uh, nostalgic facts surrounding the series thank you very much thank you thank you sakit thank you for having me on the show